the other important thing I've been trying to um, encourage is for teachers and parents to help their children to aim high, to set their aspirations high. The cruelest thing you can do to a young child is to not encourage them to set their aspirations high. You've got to help them set their aspirations high and then teach them how to achieve those. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Alan Finkel is an engineer turned neuroscientist who founded the Silicon Valley company Axon Instruments. He started two magazines, Cosmos and G, served as Chancellor of Monash University and is just coming to the end of his five-year term as Australia's chief scientist. He's passionate about innovation, science history and education and few Australians give a better speech. Alan, welcome to the Good Life podcast. I, I wanted to start with your dad, David Finkel, who came out to Australia at the age of 32 as a, as a Holocaust survivor. Uh, how did it shape you to, uh, to grow up as, as the son of somebody who had fled the Nazis? Gosh, um, the reality is that whilst it shaped dad tremendously, um, it never, he never allowed it influence the way he interacted with us. He never uh, held it over us as children. When I say us, I mean my brother and my sister, both older than me. He never expected anything special from us in acknowledgement of that, of that. But clearly he wanted to, us to have the best possible start in life, the best education, the best home experience, the most love. Uh, there's just no doubt that it shaped the way he interacted with us, but he never held it over us. I love your story that he had. He came out with only one suit, but it was stitched in such a way that he could turn it inside out, and people thought he had two. And that's part of how he wooed my mother. He was a fancy, flashy dresser, a charismatic man, good sense of music, loved to dance, uh, came out here with nothing and made the most of what he could scrounge together. He got involved, he got started in business literally by buying a little bit of material and selling it to somebody else. And that's the way he got started as an immigrant. Did he pass on that uh, entrepreneurial spirit to you? Because you're a, you're a very um, uh, business-minded scientist, I, 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 is how I think of you. Uh, you're thinking not only about uh, the new discoveries, but also the commercialisation opportunities. Uh, how did that get passed on to you from your father? So the answer is that he did pass it on to me, um, mainly through a vehicle that you wouldn't anticipate and that was through building construction and I mean the nitty-gritty of building construction so 
dad as an immigrant started buying and selling some material, uh, made a bit of money out of that, hi, um, hired some people, started uh, a very small knitting factory, and then that turned into a frock making factory, became a eventually a substantial business employing about 400 people. But at every stage, um, as it grew, dad would buy a little warehouse and renovate it and that would become his factory for a few years that he'd outgrow that and he'd buy another little old warehouse and renovate that and eventually he got to the point where he bought some land and started building things from new and he was fascinated with that design and construction process and he taught himself drafting and I have all these strong memories of walking into the sort of study area where dad used to work with gigantic pieces of mylar in front of him, probably A0 in size, and um, a clutch pencil, lead pencil, and a draftsman's ruler, and dad would be do doing the meticulous drafting of the um, overall design, not the engineering design or construction drawings, but the overall design, every window, every door, every outlet air outlet and inlet and it was that sense of engagement involvement in creativity and design uh, that I, I just used to love seeing it it was a certain intensity that was impressive but it also meant that for my school holidays um, probably three or four times not more than that but three or four times um, I did like carpentry jobs and construction jobs at one of dad's factory sites and so I learned to be a handyman. I learned to solve problems. It's one of the good things about being a carpenter or somebody in construction is you've got to solve problems all the time. And so I, I learned to use my hands, use my brain and do things that gave me the satisfaction of seeing something develop and be finished through my own hard work. So that was something very important that I got from Dad. And a skill which has turned out to be important for Australians this year. I understand that one of the things you've done as chief scientist is to lead a team putting together design specifications for ventilators so we could produce them locally. I did, and I've got to tell you, I enjoyed that so, so much. So um, I, I've got to say it, I was born an engineer. Every cell in my body, I think, is an engineer. I, I, came a cross-dresser and became a scientist, a neuroscientist, but very deep down, I'm an engineer. And I've always enjoyed that design process and pulling ideas together. And sometimes it's through the meticulous effort that you do literally designing circuits. Or for me, it was designing circuits just like Dad was designing buildings. And just like Dad would stay up late at night designing things on a piece of mylar, um, I would stay up during my... PhD, my postdoc and my early career as a businessman in, in America till 2am, 3am in the morning designing circuits. But you know, after four or five years starting a business and the business grows, you, you actually don't get the chance to do that kind of detailed hands-on design work and construction design and construction work anymore. Um, and most of my creative efforts went more into the business strategy and the product conceptualization. And as a businessman in Silicon Valley, making scientific instruments, electronic instruments and scientific um, 
data collection and, and visualization software. Uh, I spent a lot of my time writing up the product specifications for what this future product would do. And it's critically important because the engineering team is not going to build the product that you want and your customers want unless you can explain it to them in words, in a non-ambiguous, but still um, open fashion so that their creativity can lead to the, to the best product. And I, I got quite good at that. But I didn't do it for years and years and years. Let me bring the word decade or two into it. But earlier this year, when I was um, assisting the Commonwealth Government by leading its strategy for developing um, a line of supply, multiple lines of supply for ICU ventilators, one of the things that became apparent that we needed was the specifications against which the well-intentioned but not experienced engineers and engineering companies in Australia could actually develop a solution. And I just fell naturally right into it because I learnt in just a, a few short weeks very much about what's required for ICU ventilators through my conversations with ICU specialists. One of the first things I did within two days of taking on the role was start to develop a cohort of ICU physicians to whom I spoke on a regular basis and, and with whom I tested every idea about our, our strategic needs, our tactical needs, about companies whom, with whom we could work. And so when I realised that we needed to have a detailed product specification for these well-intentioned engineers and engineering firms, I just started interrogating all these ICU specialists and the wisdom of what went into this product specification came from them, but I held, held the pen. So it's a single voice, coherent product specification, very similar to what I would have done for a scientific lab-based instrument or a piece of scientific data acquisition software back in the way back when, when I ran a company in Silicon Valley. So I brought it all together um, and within a few days, of starting, had it finished, and the TGA published it on the web, their website, and it has been the go-to document that has um, helped direct the uh, good efforts of Australian engineering companies. So you enrolled in electrical engineering at Monash University in the late 1970s. Um, what, what is, how do you characterise the engineering mindset? What was it that drew, drew you towards engineering? Well, I would characterise it differently now to the answer to your question of what drew me to it, because now I'm looking with the wisdom of hindsight. Um, what drew me to it, as in many decision-making points in my life, Andrew, it was avoiding making some other decision. So as a youngster <laughs> at school, in primary and secondary school, I had been convinced that I wanted to be a doctor. And that goes back to some extent to your opening question about my father and my mother, the influence on, on me. They wanted the best for their three children possible, and they knew it all started with education. And they knew that for children of an immigrant family, being educated and ultimately getting a degree in law or medicine was a fabulous start, a fabulous way to come out of the initial poverty that is inherent in um, being a wartime immigrant. So they were very encouraging of me to study and without being overbearing, very encouraging of the idea of me being a doctor. 
And I bought into it because I found it fascinating. And I used to buy books called The How and Why Wonder Book on various parts of the human body, the digestive system, the brain, the skeleton, etc. Um, I remember putting together these little models, like um, I enjoyed putting together aeroplane models, the plastic ones where you stick all the pieces together. But I also had a model called The Invisible Man. Sorry about the gender bias, but that's what it was called, The Invisible Man, which was something that you put together and then you could pull apart and see how all the organs and the skeletal uh, aspects of the body went together. And so I was fascinated with it. And I was convinced that I wanted to be a doctor until the day in year 12, and I remember it clearly, sitting up the back of the class, it was one of those classes with a sloping set of desks and seats, uh, next to a very good friend of mine who absolutely wanted to do medicine and knew he wanted to be a cardiologist. He was unwavering. I remember sitting up the back and filling out the form for our university application, and I was pretty confident that I would get into my first preference. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my gosh, if I choose medicine, do medicine, I'll have to deal with sick people, I'll have to deal with old people. And I sort of panicked. And somehow I had the insight that what I enjoyed about the idea of being a doctor was really the mechanical aspects, the idea of being a surgeon, understanding how things work, um, the physics and the biology and the chemistry of it all. So I decided that I probably shouldn't do medicine. And then what should I do? Well, I like maths, I like physics. I didn't want to do a pure maths degree because I couldn't see at the time where that would take me. And so I chose to do engineering because I knew that that involved physics and chemistry and mechanical as you know, machinery and all sorts of exciting things. And that's how I chose to do um, engineering. Going back to the first part of your question, what is it about, I'm not sure how you phrase it, but what is it about the engineering mindset that attracts me? I guess I learnt through my degree at Monash University in engineering, what it means to be an engineer. The, 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 and there are two aspects of it that I come back to again and again and again. And the first is what I would call the engineering method, which starts with identifying the problem. And that sounds so trite. Of course, if you're gonna develop a, a product, a solution, you have to know what the problem is. But Andrew, you will have seen this in your own life. How often do people jump into an assumed, uh, into a solution on an assumed problem without stopping and think, actually, thinking actually, what is the problem that I'm trying to solve? Mm. And mm. so as an engineer, you have to start with that. Um, you, so identifying the problem, analyzing it, and then coming up with a prototype solution, testing it, iterating between the prototype solution and testing, improving, improving, and eventually putting it all together and delivering an outcome, a product. And that's the engineering um, method. The other aspect of engineering that I've subsequently understood and hold dear is what I call the engineering way. And the engineering way is the art of optimization. You know, you hear that politics is the, the art of compromise or things like that. Engineering is the art of optimization. There is no room for compromise. And surprisingly, there's no room for perfection. So take the example of building a bridge. If as an engineer, you design to perfection the ultimate bridge, good luck finding someone who can afford to finance the construction of that bridge. It's not going to happen. If you go to the other extreme and you design a bridge which compromises on structural strength and safety, well, that is a complete and unmitigated, unacceptable disaster. You can't do that. You can't compromise. So you have to work 
within safety margins and ultimately you have to come up with the optimized design that gives you the optimization between safety and cost and uh, just the structural beauty integrity and ergonomics so there are two aspects of the engineering uh, profession that I hold dear and as an economist, I'm uh, uh, drawn to that. Uh, you, of course, be familiar with the, the notion of the economist as engineer, and, and a lot of the uh, what our models are trying to do is to is to maximise subject to uh, to constraints. Um, but you then took a, a detour, as I understand it, into neuroscience. Was that while you were doing your your postdoc at the Australian National University? Well, well, that was all part of making a lifelong decision. So I finished my bachelor's degree and decided, my God, if I go out and get a job now, I will never, ever come back to academia and do a PhD. I didn't know whether I wanted to do a PhD, but I said, it's either now or never. So without knowing what I wanted to do, I sort of started uh, speaking to some of the researchers at Monash and ended up uh, being offered an opportunity to do a PhD in a biomedical engineering lab within the Department of, Engin of Electrical Engineering and working with a guy named Stephen Redman, himself a, a wonderful mathematically oriented engineer who had become fascinated with the nervous system and in particular the spinal cord uh, reflex. It's interesting, um, in engineering one of the key concepts that all machines have to follow in control theory is called negative feedback and negative feedback doesn't mean gee Andrew you're not looking good today that's maybe a social negative feedback negative feedback is actually a mathematical concept that says that if you want a certain effect you can't just aim for it and hope that it'll happen you have to adjust as you go look a perfect example is catching a ball. So let's say you're at one end of a field and I throw a tennis ball towards you and you put up your hand to catch it a few seconds before it arrives and then you close your eyes, you will not catch that ball because the wind will change its trajectory. Your estimate was not perfect in the first place. But if you keep your eyes open without you even thinking about it, you will be moving your hand into the right position to finally catch the ball through adjusting based on the errors between where you initially estimated it would be and where it is now apparently going to. And that process is called negative feedback. Um, it's how James Watt um, chose to control the speed of a steam train uh, to be constant as it went uphill along the flat and downhill. He came up with a thing called a governor. And that was the first time in history where a human being designed negative feedback to achieve a certain effect and that that uh, is replete in everything the the amplifiers that play the music at home uh, everything in the engineering world works on that um, what was an eye-opener for engineers in the 1940s so before i got involved was the discovery that the neural connections and the, new, and the neural systems in the human brain do two things that we would not have recognised if we hadn't invented them ourselves. So one thing is negative feedback is really common in the brain and the rest of the body. The reason why your temperature is controlled at a constant such as 37.3 degrees despite it being colder or hotter outside is because you have a system of negative feedback that corrects your metabolism to keep your temperature constant. And similarly, mm. the signals in your brain that allow you to think or to 
control that hand to catch the ball uh, based on negative feedback. And if we hadn't independently invented it, I don't know, 200 years ago, we being James Watson and the engineers that followed him, neuroscientists would not have recognised it in the brain. So for an electrical engineer who'd learnt all about control theory, and a second thing that I alluded to but didn't describe, which is digital communications, because the electrical signals in the brain are pulses of electricity rather than a continuum. If, we, if I hadn't learnt about binary signalling and control systems, I might not have been interested in doing neuroscience. But because I had, I and Steve Redmond, my PhD supervisor, we were just fascinated to learn more about how the human brain and the spinal cord motor neuron reflexes worked. And Steve and a few others had established a biomedical research lab at Monash University. And I just went into that and um, studied certain electrical characteristics in individual brain cells. So then uh, you uh, found yourself post postdoc uh, heading towards the US to found a, a Silicon Valley company uh, and uh, an experience that saw you living in Silicon Valley uh, through much of the 1980s and 1990s. Um, what was Silicon Valley like in that era? Oh, it was wonderful. Um, it was probably an era where most Australians hadn't heard of Silicon Valley. Um, I ended up there because, I, through love, I followed my wife. She got a postdoctoral position at UC San Francisco and I had made the decision that I did not want to stay as a researcher uh, indefinitely as a postdoctoral researcher and then beyond because I was actually better as an electrical designer. I designed all the electronic equipment that I used that made my experiments possible. And I was actually better at that than I was at a, as a biological researcher. So I knew that I wanted to leave research. I was at the ANU uh, at the time in the John Curtin School of Medical Research. Um, my wife got a postdoctoral position at UCSF. I thought, great. I'll go to San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and uh, start a company making the kinds of equipment that I'd made for my own research for other people during neuroscience research, because some of them had expressed some interest. Um, at the time, leaving Melbourne, I didn't even understand the difference between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. It's, you know, all from... The, from I don't know, 15,000 kilometres away, it all seemed the same. Um, but Silicon Valley is this area that starts about 20 kilometres south of Silicon Valley and goes all the way down... Oh, San Francisco and goes all the way down to San Jose. Um, really centred around Stanford University, but, you know, very, very extensively spread out from there. And when I went there initially, it was all low-rise buildings on big plots of land... And each of those buildings was some significant electronic company like Intel or Hewlett Packard. Um, but it was all about startups. So it didn't take me more than a week or two to find some premises which were sort of built as an office warehouse, but all of them in that, that um, block were used as corporate startups. And it was really quite easy to get all the components that I would need, components that I thought of back in Australia as exotic components. It was easy to get all the components that I need to build the equipment that I was making. It was not that hard to find the subcontractors to work with me on the assembly. It was not that hard to find really clever engineers. And 
it was also a real pleasure living in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. We lived in San Francisco and I worked in Silicon Valley. I drove down every day. It was really a pleasure living there. I, I was sort of, at the time, was a little bit scared going to America because the news was always full of um, articles about street violence and other things like that. Um, but living in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, was like a special world. Um, you know, after a few weeks, I was quite happy to leave my car parked with the doors open. I just didn't have any sense of anything untoward at all. It was as pleasant as living in Australia. <laughs> I think of uh, Silicon Valley during that period through the lens of the computer companies, uh, Apple, of course, but also HP and Intel, uh, and then towards the end of your period there in the late 1990s, uh, the, uh, the, the dot-com dot uh, boom as well. Uh, but there must also have been a, a thriving uh, medical uh, d uh, d device uh, community there uh, that you, uh, you you tapped into. Was that mostly where you were centred or was there actually a bit of crossover with the uh, uh, computer firms? It was completely intermingled. Um, you know, all technologies were all over the place in Silicon Valley. Um, so there was BioRed and molecular dynamics and, and other medical firms, but they could be next door to an Apple or, or an Intel. Uh, it was just high tech in all of its guises, and it, and it, and it, and it was and it was always sunny. So um, I don't know. Have you ever have you been to San Francisco in summer? Yes, absolutely. And it's foggy. What did Mark Twain say? I think he said, coldest. "The coldest winter I've ever spent was summer in San Francisco." Um, so we lived in San Francisco right next to the Golden Gate Park and I remember the summers, you know, the fog in the morning and I would drive down or down in, in the sense of south to Silicon Valley about 40 kilometres into beautiful clear skies, warm weather and at the end of the day, hot, I'd be driving back into my air-conditioned city. It was really quite remarkable. Yes, uh, one of my thesis advisors took a job at Stanford and said that uh, it was only she only realised how good the weather was when a student came in one day to complain that it was raining and it was affecting her mood. Uh, it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's a, bu a bucolic part of the world. Uh, but uh, you then chose to return to Australia. What prompted that return? Babysitters. Would you like me to elaborate? <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, we were there five years and um, about four and a half, we had our first child. And we'd never intended to go there indefinitely. We'd intended initially to go for two or three years, you know, for Elizabeth to do a postdoc, for me to give it a try in uh, business. And things were going very, very well. And so we were quite happy staying and it got to five years, but we had a baby and that's when we realized that we really missed home. And we missed the, the cousins and the aunties and the uncles and the grandparents. I call them the babysitters, but it's the extended family that you become very conscious of when you have a child. So we decided to come back and that was a significant decision-making point for me to either close the business down, try to sell it, but it was still in a gro early growth phase, or keep it going, and I chose to keep it going. So I actually ran the business as the chief executive officer for 23 years. The first five years were the years where I founded it and ran it for five years living in California. And for the next 18 years, I became one of the world's longest distance commuters. And so basically every five weeks or thereabouts, 
I'd get on a plane from Melbourne and fly to San Francisco for a week and then come back for four weeks to Melbourne. From Melbourne, um, I, I then learned to get up early to be in the office by 6am so I could be on the phone talking to my staff in Silicon Valley and just making it work. Somehow, even despite the distance, uh, I managed to run the company uh, effectively and productively and profitably. But it did need those frequent trips back. You know, you'll probably have your own opinion about this after having been through, um, you know, the, the Zoom year that we've had. But there's something irreplaceable about the face-to-face contact being in the same room as a dozen people and swapping ideas strategically. You can do a lot through Zoom, but you still need those face-to-face contacts. Now, of course, back then in the 1990s, we didn't have Zoom. We tried video conferencing from time to time, but it was always a failure. The technology just wasn't right. It's only the last few years that the technology uh, has all come together with high-speed broadband, with you know really good uh, microphones and cameras in uh, laptop computers and excellent software such as Teams and Zoom and, and Google Meets and, and others. But I didn't have any of that. When I first came back, we were using Telex and then we got very excited about two years later because the first fax machine came out. And then we used faxes and phone calls. Phone calls were like $3 a minute. It was scary to have a long phone call. But mm. we did them anyway because we had to have the communication. But the combination of phones and faxes, eventually email and travel, uh, made the option of long-distance management workable. So it seems to me that once you got back to Australia, you also started to uh, get, get more excited about a range of different projects. Um, one thing you've done, which is surprisingly rare, is you founded, uh, you and Elizabeth have founded two magazines, uh, Cosmos, a, a science magazine, uh, and G, a consumer sustainability magazine. Uh, what prompted that? Look, it was my, my wife, when we came back to Australia, decided not to stay in research and decided to take up um, writing and science journalism. And so she was doing a lot of writing in the area in any event. And she had won a prize. And through that, we'd gone to some dinner. And through that, I'd met Wilson de Silva. And she'd met Wilson de Silva. And Wilson de Silva was a well-known uh, science uh, print journalist and also um, he was on TV, I think in a program called Nova or something, I can't remember what, one of the ABC uh, science shows. And um, between my wife's influence and Wilson's influence, uh, when they realised I had a bit of time on my hands, um, they got me excited by the idea of actually being involved in trying to communicate science. I had grown up, I told you a few things before, but also had grown up um, reading Scientific American, you know, every month religiously when it came out, reading National Geographic uh, to sort of follow um, Jacques Cousteau and his exploration of the deep oceans and the beautiful images of of all the uh, space missions, the Mercury, the Gemini and the Apollo missions were well covered in National Geographic and Scientific American. They, they inspired me all the way. And I felt uh, later on as an adult that they had lost their mojo in a way and that there wasn't really anything particularly inspiring out there. And so 
Elizabeth Wilson, a fourth person, Kylie Ahern and myself got talking about it and uh, we agreed to co-found Cosmos magazine, which I think we did in about 2000, I think we agreed in 2004 and did it in 2005. Um, I only started doing these extra things after I sold the company. I shook hands um, as the CEO, subject to board approval, because we were a public company, in uh, June of 2004. And then the transaction went through around about uh, July of 2004, and I stayed on for 18 months. And it, was, uh, it was only after I'd sold the company that I started dabbling in other things. Uh, anyway, so that was the reason why we started Cosmos. And I think Cosmos did and continues to do a wonderful job to present long-form journalism with pictorial support on a range of interesting topics with the intention of writing a story that somebody can read and then want to talk to their family about and their friends at dinner that night. Um, we found that we were doing quite a few articles on environment and climate change and global warming and really through um, a strategic thought process at board and planning we decided there was an opportunity for a second magazine and eventually we launched g magazine it was quite different it wasn't a science magazine it was a green lifestyle magazine and it went really quite well but eventually we didn't decide that we were the right people to be running it and we we sold it off to another company and they kept it going for a long time i'm not sure if it's going still cosmos is i'm not sure about g magazine but it certainly did go for a long time Yes, it seems to me now, as somebody who loves a good science magazine, that uh, podcasts are uh, taking over some of that space for uh, people who want to, who don't have a scientific training but want to keep up to date with what's going on in science. But I wanted to ask you one of your, you know, inter interesting turns in your fascinating career, uh, because just about everything you seem to have touched has turned to gold, uh, except perhaps for your involvement with Better Place, uh, the car company that had uh, battery swap technology at the heart of its model, and which also had this idea that electric vehicles would uh, provide. Uh, a, would, would provide electricity back to the grid in, uh, in off times. Uh, you were their chief technology officer uh, in, uh, in 2009. Um, better place ultimately, uh, ultimately wound up. Um, what did you learn out of that? A lot. Um, so just to sort of set the scene a little bit more comprehensively, Better Place was actually an Israeli company founded by a fellow named Shai Gussie who was extraordinarily articulate, uh, visionary, and, and you could probably use the word evangelical. Mm. And it raised a huge amount of money on the basis of solving the range anxiety problem of the nascent electric car industry by doing battery swaps. So the idea was you could drive into a special station and have the whole battery taken out and a fresh battery, fully charged, put in in three minutes and then go on your way. Um, it was a great idea because at the time, uh, the electric cars that were just entering the market um, were targeting 100 miles or 160 kilometres in range, which sounds good, but it's just not enough. It's not enough to be relaxed as you're uh, tootling around the, the city and certainly not if you have a long commute and then other things that you might have to do. So that, that was really good. Um, I became the CTO of Better Place Australia, which was a, uh, a branch. So it wasn't the 
Israeli company. We sort of had our own investors here in Australia, um, but the technology was coming from better place, or the core technology was coming from better place Australia with refinements uh, that we were doing here. Look, the problem is, there were several problems. First of all, the strategy, as fabulous as it sounded and was in its time, within a few years became irrelevant because Elon Musk and Tesla showed that you could build an electric car with 400 kilometres range. And once you've got 400 kilometres range, um, range anxiety is just not a concern. And so being able to swap out a battery in three minutes is not that important. Now, swapping a battery takes a very, they're like six, seven hundred kilograms. So you can't just sort of drive onto a piece of concrete and have somebody reach under the car and pull it out and put a new one in. It's a sophisticated station about the size of a car wash. And they were very expensive to build. And um, that made the economics of doing the swap not attractive. Another problem was um, they got Renault to build a car with a swappable battery, but couldn't get anybody else to do it because when you're uh, building an electric car with a long range battery, the battery is by far the most expensive part of the car, but it's also the part of the car that is going to determine performance in the eyes of the driver. And the car companies just didn't want to have their highly refined battery pack taken out and replaced with some cheap alternative made somewhere in Asia or India or wherever. Mm. Um, because that battery pack is actually quite a sophisticated piece of digital as well as electronics, electrical storage hardware, and it communicates with the car. And so they didn't want to find, face the risk of you being um, driving at 100 kilometres an hour down the highway and something goes wrong with the communication to the battery and the car comes to a screeching halt because it doesn't know what's going on. There's another reason they didn't want to do swappable batteries because when you've got something so big in the car, you need to spread it out and it's not easy to get something as big as that out through the space between the four wheels and plus it's part of the integral structure of the car. So many reasons why it didn't, uh, the companies didn't want to get with it. Um, but there were other problems as well. Shai Gussie, smart as he was, made fundamental business mistakes of bringing in friends and siblings into key management roles that they didn't have expertise on. The board, uh, it was just classic, the board, and we're talking boards representing what ultimately turned out to be a billion dollars of investment. The board members were taken with Shia Gussie's vision. I, I'm not questioning his integrity. I think he was honest all the way. But they were taken with his vision and just accepted it and didn't call him up on the nepotism, didn't call him up on the need to reinvent the strategy. And so it burned through a billion dollars on about zero revenue and collapsed. Um, I was there for two years. I went The first year I was incredibly enthusiastic, did a lot for the company, I thought. Um, then got to the point where I could see that they were not evolving to take into account the changed circumstances. I tried for a year uh, working with the Australian CEO and senior executives in Israel to encourage change. It was hopeless, and so I just left and moved on. You've uh, you've also then uh, served as uh, as Chancellor of uh, Monash University. Is is being a Chancellor something uh, the, a job you'd recommend? Uh, I mean, I think of it as being a, a job which involves having to uh, to shake huge numbers of hands, uh, typically to give the same uh, inspiring graduation speech again and again, uh, and then to uh, 
chair the uh, the university board and, and choose a new vice chancellor from time to time. Have I got the kind of basic position description right of, of being a chancellor? And uh, are there aspects of it that uh, that make it more exciting than uh, than I've pitched it? Uh, several, <laughs> several, Andrew. Tell me about that. Uh, first of all, uh, when you're talking about it as a career choice, it's not an easy choice for people to make because there is. You know, you can't normally go and apply for a job like that. You've got to be approached. Um, so the Chancellor, for those who are not familiar with the university structure, is the Chairman of the Board. The Board of the University is called either the Council or the Senate, and the Chair of the Board is called the Chancellor. The CEO of a university is called the Vice-Chancellor. Um, you're right. In eight years, I shook 54,000 hands of graduate bachelor's graduates, master's and PhD graduates. And you know what? You did pick a very big university. I did. Uh, I enjoyed it every single time because I was standing there and each of those students had their 10 seconds of fame, um, their little history moment, walking across the stage in front of 400 people, including their family. And I just took it upon myself to do eyeball contact with them, to shake their hand warmly, say something, and then give my attention to the next person. And you could see that as boring, but in a sense it was uplifting. But look, there's a lot more to it. There is There are ceremonial duties, including meeting international visitors. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Chancellor and the Council have the same responsibilities as the Chair and the Board members of a company. Universities, a $2 billion industry, it's like a large, you know, medium-sized public company, a lot of staff, a lot of students. And um, the council is responsible ultimately for the success of the university and therefore strategy and budget and the highest levels of appointments such as the vice chancellor. And it's not as if a board originates strategy, if it does, it's a mistake. The CEO, and the senior management, they're the ones that are living and breathing strategy and budget every day of their lives. They're the ones that put together the drafts, but they bring it to the board or the council. And, you know, during the course of developing the strategy and budget each year, they will come to the board two or three times and get challenged appropriately, respectfully, but seriously by the board. They go back and they refine it. And that's an important process. Um, so the council was responsible for board uh, for strategy and for budget. And as the chair known as the council, I had a special relationship three times with the three vice chancellors. I mean, think of it from the point of view of the CEO. There are certain things that are difficult to discuss even with your closest management colleagues. It's important to have a chair who can be your personal sounding board, mentor, advisor, whatever you want to call it. So I enjoyed the relationship with the CEO. I enjoyed the council, which wonderful members, our responsibility. I did have the opportunity to lead what we called the Estates Committee. I, I developed the Estates Committee. We didn't have it originally, which um, commissioned a master plan for our two major campuses, one in Clayton and one in Caulfield. And during the eight years there, we basically reinvented the physical amenity of our campuses so that when we spent money on a new building, instead of getting a box in the wrong spot, we got a really pleasant to attend building in the right location. And you know what? It didn't cost a lot more to do it properly. It did mean though, that you had to have a master plan and you had to have people such as a couple of council members and a chancellor who had the long-term enduring um, strategy and performance of the university 
in their minds rather than the day-to-day exigencies that are in the minds of management. So there was there were many, many opportunities to be a useful creative influence and the pleasure of doing graduation ceremonies. In that design comment, I'm uh, sort of still hearing echoes of, uh, of the philosophy of your father. It's, uh, it's nice to think about. Uh, we're coming towards the end of our time, Alan, I, and uh, we haven't even touched on your, uh, your work as uh, chief scientist over the past five years. Uh, you've done a, a huge amount during that period, including the Finkel Review and the Clean Energy Target, uh, some important work around COVID this year, uh, your uh, uh, thought leadership on artificial intelligence. Uh, but I wanted to, to tap your brains on, on one of your real passions, which is education. Uh, you say that all students should focus on maths and English at, uh, at school. Now, why this um, uh, approach, which some would see as a sort of an old-fashioned back-to-basics? Look, you could argue that, but there's, you know, you've got to say, is it wrong to do, uh, give attention to the basics? I actually um, put it that there are four subject areas that young people should be uh, exposed to at learning and practicing right through our primary school and secondary school. If you can only do two, it has to be English and mathematics because English is the language of discourse, of thinking, communicating with peers. Uh, mathematics is the language of science. I, I, I like to sort of um, say that in the beginning, I'll, forgive me as a chief scientist, we're going to invoke God. In the beginning, God created mathematics and mathematics begat physics and physics begat chemistry and chemistry begat biology and then you've got everything else. <laughs> There's sort of a logic there. So the mathematics underpins everything. So English, the language of discourse, mathematics, the language of science. And both of them require muscle memory. You ride a bicycle. Um, you don't have to think about what you're doing when you're riding a bicycle because your muscles, your whole body has learned how to do it and do it well. Well, English and mathematics are like that. And you need to start at a young age. Good luck. Good luck. When I say English, by the way, I mean you're the language of the country you're, you, you grow up in. So if you're growing up in France, I'm talking about French. If you grow up in Spain, I'm talking about Spanish. In China, I'm talking about Chinese. But you need to be learning English from a young age so that you can be a wonderful practitioner. Same with mathematics. Good luck trying to pick up mathematics without having done it at school when you go to university. It's not going to happen. English and maths, you need to learn early. The third like that is music, and the fourth like that is sport. So English, math, music and sport are four subjects that you benefit greatly from learning them well and practising all the way through school. I don't think that's old-fashioned. I think that's just fundamental. Beyond that, um, students should be advised to take the subjects that will give them the maximum uh, flexibility to follow their their fundamental interests as they go through university and for each student that will be different. The problem that I've had and I've been fighting against is that from the consultations I did when I did a, a report on science education at, at secondary schools for the COEG Education Council, it was very clear through the consultations that everybody, teachers, principals, parents, perhaps not students, but everybody who was providing advice was worried that students were being advised to choose their subjects in upper secondary school based on how they could maximise their ATAR score rather than choosing the subjects that would set them up best for life. 
And so that's the main issue that I've been grappling with. How do you get them to look beyond just that raw score? And it starts with giving them advice on what the right subjects are. The other important thing I've been trying to um, encourage is for teachers and parents to help their children to aim high, to set their aspirations high. I, I, a good friend of mine who was the chief scientist in India many years ago uh, pointed out to me that the cruelest thing you can do to a young child is to not encourage them to set their aspirations high. You've got to help them set their aspirations high and then teach them how to achieve those. Um, they're the things that have been driving me to give the right subject advice. And the one thing I have been able to do that I'm very pleased with, and it's taken a few years and it's just come to fruition now, is encourage a coalition of the willing of six universities to come together to put together under the banner of Australian Informed Choices a singular set of advice for young students in years nine and ten to help them choose the right subjects to meet their interests in life. And that's going to go public in the next couple of weeks. Why are so many people turned off maths, do you think? Oh, uh, many reasons. Um, first of all, it's actually quite hard. And so you need good teachers. Um, because probably in the early 2000s, as massification of universities started to occur, the universities dropped prerequisites for maths. Uh, principals at school didn't see the need to employ maths teachers and, and teach maths at the same rate that they were previously. And so the teaching profession sort of turned away from maths and now there's a shortage of maths teachers. So you end up with teachers teaching out of discipline in other words teachers who weren't trained in maths trying to teach maths and the most important thing you need as a teacher is really good subject knowledge and so it's very difficult and that shows and the kids sort of um, lose interest partly because of that so it's having the right maths teachers um, having maths that's taught with some context just learning the maths for the sake of learning maths would be as boring as learning any other subject just for the sake of learning it. It's got to have some context and that's curriculum material as well as teaching. Um, you know, there is a tendency to think, gosh, now that we've got computers, we don't need maths. And that was first manifest with calculators and not needing maths. But I've got to tell you, so many things that I do in life, and I see it for other people, you're standing around having a discussion about, you know, maybe let's go back to building. You're, you're a builder or an architect or a developer, and you're talking about the square, foot, the square footage. They tend to still talk about that, and somehow you've got to convert that to meterage. Well, the person who turns around, gets out the calculator, and starts doing the calculation to convert from square feet to square metres has dropped out of the conversation for 30 seconds, whereas... The experienced builders and the people who've taught themselves or, or, or know maths can do an approximation in their head virtually instantaneously and keep going. I, I just think maths is replete in life. And for that reason, if no other reason, it's important. Alan, what advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> um, 
Johnny Johnny Cash, you know, the country and western singer, he had a song that said, "Do what you do do well, boy. Do what you do do well." <laughs> and I think that's probably the most important advice. You know, you've got to do what you choose what you want to do. But gosh, if you're doing it, be intense, aim for quality, enjoy it, and do it well. Uh, there are many other things that I would advise as well. Um, you know, like managing your emotions. Don't get angry when people do silly things. Respond to disrespect with respect. Um, the most important thing you've got is your integrity. Don't don't ever sacrifice it. But if I could only advise one piece of one one thing, I'd say do what you do do well. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe, and this goes to the late 1990s, I used to believe that the internet would bring harmony and international scale understanding to the peoples of our planet. And boy, I was so wrong. It's fascinating. As you know, as you know, it's become an echo chamber for crazy ideas. It is fascinating tracing the development of uh, of books about the internet over the last twenty years. The sort of uh, utopian democracy uh, series of of writings yeah. in the early two thousands now to uh, to the sort of dark authoritarian turn, often traced back to the sort of uh, echo chambers and to the way in which conspiracy theories like QAnon are, are, are emboldened by the internet. Um, when are you most happy? Oh, eating chocolate mousse. Is that a legitimate answer? <laughs> oh, look, I'm really happy when I'm with my wife. That, that knocks off out of me asking you about the, your guilty pleasures as well. <laughs> I have no guilty pleasures. Just the pleasure well, of eating mousse. chocolate mousse. It's not, uh, it's not guilty. I enjoy it. I enjoy being with my wife and children. I'll tell you what I really enjoy, and it doesn't happen as often as I would like, and I'm hoping to recapture this next year when I have a bit more time, I really enjoy reading a great novel, the sort of thing where you just disappear into the pages of the book and don't want to go to sleep. I've gotten into audiobooks lately, and uh, you, you, if you haven't read Ian McEwan's Machines Like Us, uh, it's what I was, uh, was thinking of you as I was, uh, was going through it. Uh, beautiful, beautiful page-turner. <laughs> Um, so, you know, sometimes I like reading, sometimes I um, like listening to an audio book as something that I've enjoyed from the past. And um, this year when I, we were doing some walks, I listened to The Martian by Andy Weir. That was a book mm. that came out, I don't know how many years ago, and became a movie. And um, it's about an engineer, so it's obviously attractive. Uh, an engineer just solving one problem after another in the most creative possible ways in the most extraordinary circumstances. So all three media on that particular book have worked for me. The original written material, the movie, and the audio. And, and it's rare, but all three of them were, were well done. Yeah, I've seen the Matt Damon movie, but uh, the, the book's worth reading. Even it is. Have you seen the movie? It is. Or, or the audio book. Okay. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, um, I find exercise is important. So all my adult life, I've been a jogger. I'm not a you know, fabulous athlete or anything like that. But if I go for a jog three mornings a week, I feel mentally alert all the time. And if for various reasons I don't, after a few days, I get more and more sluggish. So a little bit of exercise 
um, I think is essential. Finally, Alan, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Let, let me give you two. We've already talked about my dad, and I don't think I got to mention it, but uh, dad um, really always gave to charity and loved giving to charity and discussed morality and ethics with me as a young, as a young man. I, I remember that very well. My dad died when I was 21, so I'm stretching now to have those recollections. But the other who gave me similar sorts of values was my PhD supervisor, Steve Redman. Um, he used to do the hardest experiments and he just kept at them until he got all the data and it was meticulously analysed. And if he only published one paper for the year, so be it. He was never into slicing and dicing and getting three papers where one would suffice. Uh, just the highest level of research integrity that you could imagine. Alan Finkel, outgoing chief scientist and just outgoing scientist. Thank you very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Uh, Andrew, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Dr. Carl, Graham Walker and Michelle Simmons. On the theme of living well, Nick Terrell and I have a new book out titled Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.